Good afternoon, good evening, good morning, whatever time of day it is when you may be listening. This is Reverend Kay Mortimer with Covenant Truth Ministries, and here we are in episode 315 of our Bible Bites as we continue to read through the scriptures this year, and we're just about to close out the year in another few weeks and uh, move into 2021, and we'll see what God has for us at that time. But today, my reading is found in John 16 through 18. Welcome to you as you join in. In John chapter 16 through 18, in 16, uh, we're still in the Last Supper. Remember that. We're still in the conversation and the teaching and the discourse that Jesus is having with his disciples during the last Passover Seder before he will be heading to Golgotha, to pay the price for our sins. And so in verse in chapter 16, he's continuing doing most of the speaking here. And we see that as we go through. And he says this, he says, These things I have spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. In other words, he's telling them, he's just been talking to them about several things. First of all, he's been telling them He's telling them here that the truth given to them ahead of time is designed to keep them from stumbling when things do not work out the way they think it should. Because he knows what's fixing to happen to him, and he knows that they're going to be completely blindsided by it. They're not going to understand it. They're going to depart from him for a season. He knows all of that ahead of time. So he's telling them here that I'm telling you these truths ahead of time so that you don't stumble because they're not going to play out the way you are expecting. And so he tells them that, you know, he's already talked to them about coming persecution that they will face. He's talked to them about the Holy Spirit and his work and his coming soon, his expectations of them and what is going to happen to him. And so he's trying to tell him, listen, I know you're not going to understand it. It's not going to work out the way you think. So I'm telling you these things in an effort and for you so that you will not stumble because it will be different than you think. He talks about the coming persecution in verse 2 that, you know, he says that whoever will kill you will think that they're doing a service to their God. It will be that they will be that evil and deceived in their minds to um, consider killing Christians as an act of worship to their evil gods. And we can even see some of this in effect today as well. So we just need to understand these were the things that Jesus said he knew was, were going to happen. In verse 6 through 7, he tells them that they're going to sorrow, or he's, he's, they're sorrowing as he's talking of leaving them. But he comes back and he says, but it's to your advantage that I do go away. Because if I, as long as I'm here, the Holy Spirit can't come. I've got to return to the Father for the Father then to send you the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit, so that you can then... Um, be comforted and so that you can then be empowered by the grace of the Holy Spirit to do what you're supposed to do. So he says, it's to your advantage that I go away. And then I want to read to you 
in verse um, 8, in verse 7, is where he says that. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the, Holy, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. Then he goes on down and he talks about the job of the Holy Spirit when he comes into the world. He's going to be the spirit of truth for the disciples of Jesus, for the Christians. He's going to lead us into all truth. He's going to be a comforter to us, etc. But to the world, he's going to come in and he's, his job is to convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. And that is still true today. And so, beloved, it is through the convicting power of the Holy Spirit of God that people are drawn to come to Jesus when they have that revelation knowledge of their sin and of the punishment for it and that there is a judgment coming. All of those things are part of people drawing people to come to Jesus in real, sincere, saving faith. And so the Holy Spirit is not going to uh, paint a rosy picture. He's going to come and tell the truth. Because he is the spirit of truth. Hallelujah. And so then as we go on, he talks about how the Holy Spirit will lead us in verse 13 of chapter 16. He speaks about how the Holy Spirit will lead us. It says that he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatsoever he hears, he will speak and he will tell you things to come. So he's saying here that this spirit of truth is going to be the one that will lead us into all truth. And that's still true today. That was proven even in the book of Acts through Revelations, how he was leading the apostles all through those times. And it's still true today. He still speaks to us today. He still leads us today. Hallelujah. In verse 14, I want to read this to you. Because he's still talking about the Holy Spirit here. And he says this. He will glorify me. For he will take of what is mine. And declare it to you. Now. We have to remember that John has clearly told us. In the first chapter of this book. That Jesus is the word. The word was with God. The word was God. Uh, in the beginning the word was with God. And the word was God. And so forth. So we know that Jesus is the living word. Now we have the written word that was spoken by God and recorded for us. And that we call the Logos. And the, Jesus is the living Logos, you could say. So what he's saying here is that the Holy Spirit is going to take the scriptures and make them come alive to you and they will become spirit and life because he's going to draw out something specifically for you in whatever moment or need you are in and that word then from the logos becomes a rhema word for you a living word in that moment now, the, you, this can happen at any time when you are reading the scriptures or when you are meditating on the scriptures, even in prayer, whatever. But what will happen is the rhema word is always something that's drawn from the logos and will always concur with the logos word of God. It will never, ever, ever contradict the word of God. So this is what Jesus is saying here. This Holy Spirit is going to glorify him and take of what is his, take from the word, from this logos, something that will then 
speak, he will speak to you directly. And as you're reading the scriptures, I hope this year you're seeing that happen as you're reading these chapters, that you are finding that the Holy Spirit will pull out from there something that's specific that you need to focus on or you need to hear or you need to remember or you need to meditate on or you need to memorize. And so that's what he's talking about here. It will all be from his word. And he, the Holy Spirit is the one that will make it come alive to you for whatever your need is. Then in verse 19 through 22, I want to point this out because here Jesus is talking about uh, them saying, you know, they didn't understand exactly what he was saying before that time because he's saying, you know, I'm going to uh, a little while and you'll not see me and again a little while and you will see me and all of that. And he says, most assuredly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice and you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. And then he gives the example of a woman that is having a baby in labor and childbirth. And I love this because this is a perfect analogy of what Jesus is talking about. He is, in essence, saying here that there will be some coming sorrow in in the time of labor, the, the woman is always sorrowing. There is a pain. There is a time of sorrow and, and um, distressing things that will hit her. And it's not going to be a pleasant time for her then. But joy comes in the end, just like this woman having the baby. She is in pain at first, but when that baby is born and she sees that beautiful creation of God and looks upon that face that of that child she has carried for nine months, there's just an immediate joy and bonding and love that, that happens and that should happen. It's a godly thing for that to occur. And Jesus is drawing from that analogy here. So in essence, he's saying you're going to be sorrowful now, but when you see the result of what I'm about to do, it will bring you as much joy as a mother has when that baby finally is born. Because in essence, what's happening is through his death, through what they are fixing to experience as sorrowful right now, brand new baby Christians will come. Lots of people will come to know Jesus because of his death on the cross, because of what he has done there. And so there will be joy in the end, even though they're experiencing the sorrow of having to go through this right now. There will be new people coming in to the kingdom of God. And Jesus defined it in the book of Hebrews. The Holy Spirit had the author of Hebrews write it this way. He said that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. That joy was that was the same kind of thing as that mother knowing that that baby's coming. And that's going to bring her the joy. And so it's very similar situation here that Jesus is describing. Then... In verse 23 and 24, <clears throat> he says this at first here. He says, and in that day, 
You will ask me nothing. He's talking about the day when he returns and we see him. He says, in that day, you will ask me nothing. Now, the reason for that is because when he comes again and we see him and we are with him, we will, we will be with him and we will be known as we are known, Paul tells us in, a, in the New Testament. So we won't have a need to know anything more or to ask him anything more. At that point, the understanding that we need will be complete and we won't lack anything because he'll be right there with us and we will know as we are known. But he goes on in that verse and he says, most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the father in my name, he will give you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you may re that you may receive, that your joy may be full. So he's telling them that, yes, that's the coming day. In the coming day, you're not going to have a need to ask me anything. But until then, this is what you're to do. Ask the Father anything in my name. Now, part of what the church needs to understand is what does it really mean to pray in Jesus' name? And it can be defined simply as understanding this. We are praying to the Father in the stead of Jesus. In other words, we're praying as if he were praying, standing right here and praying himself. We pray in Jesus' stead and we pray completely in accordance with Jesus' uh, character, with his essence, with his nature, and with his will. So if it's something that Jesus is in agreement with, that we know that he supports or, or wants for us, or it's in line with his nature, then we pray that to the Father in Jesus' name. And when we pray in Jesus' name, that's really what it's talking about. It's not just saying those words, in Jesus' name. It means praying in agreement with who he is, that his name represents. Because the name that the Jewish people, they believed that the name represented the actual character and essence of a person, whoever it was. So that's why you'll see the names in Scripture, and you'll see many um, important facts about those names. Sometimes they'll say, for instance, God changed the name of Abram to Abraham. He changed the name of Jacob to Israel. So there's a reason for changing names. There's a reason for the naming of things. And that's what Jesus is saying. You pray in line with who I am, with what I want, with my nature, with my character, with my will. Ask the Father anything in align with that in my name, and he will give it to you. Praise be to God. In verse 31 and 31 through 33, he is prophetically speaking here about his betrayal and about how they will abandon him. But then he says, verse 33, and we love this verse, but in this context, I want you to see something. The verse 33 of chapter 16 says, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. And we all love to cling to that verse, and, and rightly so. It's a beautiful, peaceful verse of comfort to us and of confidence for us. But in the context of this passage, He's speaking that to them to give them comfort and to give them peace, even though he knows that they're fixing to abandon him for a season. 
because he knows it will not be permanent and they will return to him. Chapter 17 is Jesus' high priestly prayer. His, his last night with the, the disciples before the cross, he's delivering to them this prayer over them and for them and for others. Notice in verse 1 through 3, he specifies for us that his hour is here. We've seen many times in the Gospels where he said, my hour's not yet come. Or he would escape through the audience or through the crowd or whatever because it wasn't his time. But he says, now my hour is come. You know, Father, the hour has come. And then he says, okay, it's time. Glorify your, yourself. Glorify your son. And, um, and then he goes on and he says, as you have given him the authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And thus those that they know from the, the end, from the beginning, will receive him. It's not, it's not like a, uh, we've chosen this one and we don't like that one, so we don't choose that one. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying here is that in their foreknowledge of the whole of time, they know the ones that will believe in him. And beloved friend, I pray that that's you as well. But he says this, he defines, Jesus defines for us what eternal life means. So if you've heard that term and you've never understood what it means, here's the definition in John chapter 17, verse 3. And this is eternal life. How does he define it? That they may know you the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Now, that's the definition that Jesus gives to that. What is he saying? He's saying that it's a relationship. It is knowing God in an intimate, personal relationship where you are in fellowship with him. <clears throat> knowing Jesus, his son, in an intimate, personal relationship in fellowship with him. If you'll remember, Jesus was called Emmanuel, God with us, God living with us, God doing life with us. That's what eternal life is all about. It's, it's, we're married to the Lord in a sense. He has become our groom and we have become his bride. And it's a personal relationship with deep and sweet fellowship with the Lord. That is eternal life. Praise be to God. And Jesus came to give that. And John writes so that we will know that Jesus came to give that. And he is the father of eternity and can give us this as well. Notice in verse four, he says, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. Now, when Jesus went to the cross, and died on the cross and cried out these words, it is finished. There were still people that needed to be healed. There were still people that needed to be delivered from demons. There were still people that needed to be saved. But he knew his mission. He knew the timing of his mission. He knew the amount of, of um, what he was to do and exactly what he was to accomplish. And his mission was to bring salvation to the world. And he showed the pattern. He became the role model for every one of his disciples, including those of us today that are still learning and growing in this Christian walk. 
so that we would carry the work on. He could not carry it on himself. Matter of fact, in these, uh, in these chapters in John, he says, greater works you will do in another place that we read earlier. The reason is because um, we can only be one place at one time. We can't be everywhere at once. But yet the Holy Spirit who has come is with us, um, in us, and he is able to work through us powerfully and through lots of other people. And, you know, I can't reach the entire world, but I can reach some. And, you know, someone in another city can reach some and so forth. So, you know, God has a plan for all of us to be working together in his field and doing greater things. And so even when Jesus was here on the earth, in his humanity, because he came as a baby and grew up as a man, became a man, and in his humanity, he could not be everywhere at one time. So he, he said, I go away and it's better for you that I do so that you can do those greater works because the Holy Spirit is coming in and going to be indwelling you and you'll be able to do those things. And so that's what he's talking about here. So he was able to decree because he knew that he had done the one major thing that the Lord had called him to do. That mandate was to father eternal life in all repentant sinners who believe in him and to write their name in the Lamb's book of life through the power of his blood and the blood covenant he cut so that we could be bought back to God and redeemed. Praise be to God. Hallelujah. I want to read you verse 11 of chapter 17 also. I love this when he says, Now I'm no longer in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me. He's praying to God and he says, All of these that I know that, that are going to believe in me and become your flock, these are your people, keep them through your name. Don't necessarily just take them out of the world right away, but keep them so that they can minister in the world. Keep them from the evil one. And that's a beautiful prayer for us to pray as well today and even to pray over our children that God would keep those children and grandchildren that he has given to us through his very name. Praise be to God. Hallelujah. Then I want to look at, um, I want you to look with me at verse 20 of this chapter 17. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Now, beloved friend, every single Christian alive today, that speaks of them. He's praying, Jesus is praying for you and me today as he prayed for every one of us included in that prayer for a thousand, two thousand years so far until the Lord returns again. He has prayed that prayer to the Father on behalf of every single one of us, the millions and the billions that have believed in him over the last two thousand years. This, we're all in this verse. He included us in his prayer before he went to the cross. Oh, hallelujah, because every one of us have believed in Jesus through the words of the disciples because of the scriptures. We've believed in the Lord 
through the words and through how they have taught us the truth, coupled with the Old Testament, and even, for, for instance, with the book of Hebrews, especially expounding and revealing the Old Testament and its connection to the new. So we have come to faith in Jesus through their words, and that includes Jesus included us and blessed us in this prayer as well. Praise God. He knew about us even before he went to the cross, and he was thinking of us 2,000 years ago. He was thinking forward to the time when we are even living today. Notice in verse 24 also he says, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am. Jesus desires fellowship with you, friend. He desires to have that intimate relationship with you. He desires and wants to live with you and with us. His name is Emmanuel. He wants to do life with us. Praise be to God. And then in chapter 18, they start, they go to Gethsemane, and we see his arrest and his betrayal and his de Peter's denial of him and his trial, all of that leading up to the cross, which we'll study and listen, look to, um, look to in chapter 19 and so on. But here he has the journey to Gethsemane, and he's going there to prepare to give his life. He prays to the Father there. And when Jesus, when the soldiers came to him, and he said to them, I am, they said, you know, he says, who are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am he. He's declaring himself to be God. And some of them were officers of the temple, officers of the priest. And so they were all taken aback by that because here he was decreeing again that he is the Lord, which he is. He is the Lord. Hallelujah. And so they were shocked at his claim, or they were shocked also, I believe, perhaps at his willingness and honesty because he didn't try to run or deceive them and go, oh, well, he went that away, you know, kind of thing. No, he's not trying to get out of it here. He realizes his time has come, and he has to fulfill what God sent him here to do, and that was to redeem us. I want to read to you verse 11 of chapter 18. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into your sheath. Peter's uh, gotten Im impetuous again, and he cuts off the uh, ear of Malchus, and Jesus has to fix it. And we read more details about some of these events in some of the other Gospels. John's purpose is to focus on one thing, and that is so that his readers will believe in Jesus and have everlasting life. He's already told us that. So Jesus says to Peter, verse 11, put your sword into your sheath. Shall I not drink the cup? which my Father has given me. And that cup he's referring to is all that he's about to endure to bring and to buy redemption for you and for me, the cup of redemption through his blood. Praise God. So we see how he's arrested, he's bound, he's led first to Annas and then on to Caiaphas. We read about John and Peter following him, Peter's three denials, um, they, the, be, between his arrest and the time of the cock crow, which was usually around 3 a.m. in the morning. And so then we see Jesus going before Pilate at the praetorium, 
which was probably located at the Antonio Fer uh, Fortress. And this was approximately 6 o'clock in the morning, very early in the morning. And then in other Gospels, we find the details about how he spent some time before Pilate. Then Pilate sends him to Herod, and then Herod sends him back to Pilate. Now, John skips a lot of that, but it is in some of the other Gospels. But we do see a little bit more about some of his discussion with Pilate here in chapter 18. And we see that one of the things Pilate um, can't seem to understand is absolute truth. Let's look at verse 33. Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? Uh, 34, Jesus kind of, um, he says this, are you speaking for yourself about this or did others tell you this concerning me? And then Pilate says, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? And then Jesus answers, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. And friend, there's a lot that, uh, in that that we need to remember as well. We're living in perilous times. The Bible's already predicted these times would come. We don't know what all the future holds in different arenas of our lives, in different spheres. We don't know what the future holds in government and in uh, other geopolitical uh, realms. We don't know what to expect. But one thing we do know, Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. And he's saying here that, that we're not to draw up arms militarily and go out and fight for Jesus. Our kingdom is our home and our citizenship is elsewhere. His kingdom <clears throat> is not of this world, but he has a greater kingdom. And one day we will be a part of that kingdom. And then Jesus says, Pilate asks him, he says, are you a king? Jesus says, you say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born and for this cause I've come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who's of the truth hears my voice. And then we have that famous line from Pilate, what is truth? In other words, is there even such a thing as absolute truth? Some people question that today. And let me tell you, friend, there is real absolute truth and it is called the Word of God. It is called the Holy Bible in some places, or the Scriptures. That is the truth, period. And it stands forever. Cultures may change, but the Word of God will abide forever. I pray this has been a blessing to you. And Lord willing, you can join us again for future episodes of Bible Bites. God bless you today. In Jesus' name.